Black on the Scene is a love letter to Black creators, Black content, and Black voices who are helping to drive change, representation, and entertainment. I'm John Gist, here with my co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are two industry professionals that have worked on some of the most iconic multicultural film and television campaigns over the years. The Black on the Scene podcast will highlight the many accomplishments of Black folks across film, TV, music, art, literature, and sports that celebrate diverse and nuanced stories which embody our culture. In each episode, we shout out and give flowers to some culture contributors and creators that you know and those you should know for being Black on the scene. So let's get into this episode. Didi and I are back with another episode of Black on the Scene, and we are joined by the immensely talented and, like her Twitter page reads, excessively black Brooke Obi. Yeah, yeah! Brooke is a hey. filming... Brooke is a film and television screenwriter, award-winning author, entertainment journalist, critic, co-editor of Roxane Gay's Audacity, and editor-in-chief of Exxon Nicole, the premier digital destination for black women millennials. Man, hey, girl, John, we are not smart enough to be talking to Brooke. Today, um, Brooke is a woman who not only has this long list of receipts in her professional career, she's got the educational receipts, too. She is a proud graduate of Hampton University, of course, summa cum laude, and Mercer University School of Law, where she was the 11th Circuit Survey Editor of the Mercer Law Review and graduated with her certificate in advanced legal research, writing, and drafting. While at Mercer, she worked on the legal defense dream team of rapper T.I. for the high-profile case that we all know, the United States versus Harris. Brooke also received her MFA in creative writing at the new school. Clearly, she is a slacker, John. (laughs) Clearly. Brooke is a woman who I've known for a number of years, and I can call a true friend. Every time I see her, she greets me with that warm smile of hers, and we immediately embrace for a hug, snap a few pictures, and always pour into each other. Brooke, it is so good to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Welcome to Black on the Scene. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's my day off, and I'm really happy to be spending it with y'all. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for spending it with us. Brooke, let's just jump in. You are the epitome. You know, I've told you this before, behind the scenes, uh, in front, all the time. I give you your flowers. You are the epitome of a thoughtful journalist. Your work is emotional. I always have some kind of -of out-of-body response when I read your work. You have just a true gift of writing things that we all are just thinking in such a thoughtful way. And because of that, of course, your stuff goes viral and it just it just permeates to so many different areas. But I want to talk about who was the young Brooke Obi? Who were you as a young girl, as a child growing up? Were you always consumed with the entertainment space? What were you watching? And then did you want to always be a writer when you were growing up? Oh, so that's, yeah, young Brooke was uh off the chain it's it's funny um i talked to one of my mentors in the industry and they were like oh so you've always been this way like you've you've been like this from the jump and that's really the case like when i was little um i loved watching raven simone so you know i wanted to be raven simone i was like i could do that so i was very much into acting when i was a kid um 
I didn't, <laughs> on my first um, SAG role, like I was really starting to make it. Like my, my manager in New York was, had discovered Tom Cruise. Um, and so she was like, I know child talent when I see it. And, you know, we were starting to do some really great things. Um, I lost a really big role to the little girl from Crooklyn. You can't beat the little girl from Crooklyn. Like, but it was, you know, it was a sign to me that I was on the right path. And, you know, this was going to be a really big part of my story. And then, um, my dad got transferred to Omaha, Nebraska, who's in the military, and that was like the best place for his like career or whatever. And so that was the end of my career um, in acting. I did do some theater in Nebraska, but they were just not checking for black girls in Nebraska. I did um, a commercial that never aired. Um, and that was pretty much the end. It was very discouraging, um, you know, being in Nebraska. That's I never claimed Nebraska. I always claimed Virginia because that's where I spent probably the vast majority of my childhood, but um, there was this period, um, I think between like four and six and um, 10 and 15 that I was in Nebraska. Um, And it was just horrible, extremely racist, token black person everywhere I went in school and the neighborhood. We really had to go about an hour to Omaha um, cause we were actually in, out in the suburbs, had to go an hour to see black people. And so church was like my saving grace. So I actually started off as a Christian blogger, um, you know, because I was very much, yeah, that's how I started my career. Um, and actually I, I did want to be a writer and my mom was like, you should major in journalism. But I had this idea that I wanted to be the first black female Supreme Court justice because I had learned about <laughs> the first black man Supreme Court justice, um, Thurgood Marshall as a kid. And when I would say that to adults, they would be like, oh, wow, this is so impressive. And I was the kind of kid that like really loved pleasing adults. So I just really kept that going. Even through college, I would say this and like really be committed to it, which is why I ended up going to law school. Um, and it was really in law school and working on that case for TI um, and just seeing how broken the legal system is and just how gross <laughs> the legal system is. I just really did not see myself being a part of that. Um, and actually getting that advanced certificate in legal writing is what sparked my joy again for um, writing um, and creative writing. So I started a blog. um, It was about breaking into the entertainment law scene back then. But then when I moved to DC because of Obama, um, you know, that was during the time of like, you know, I was on the Obama campaign um, in 2008, 2009, my last year of law school, Uh, went into political communications instead of the law. Um, got really disenchanted with that by 2010 and decided, but at that time too, I had started a spiritual life blog um, that had taken off and gotten a couple of awards back when like blogging was the thing everybody was doing. Um, And from that, I got an opportunity to help relaunch ebony.com in 2012, moved to New York, got my MFA and decided like to leave politics, to leave law, all these things behind and just start telling, you know, my own stories and, um, also just telling fiction stories as well. That's why I wrote my novel and, you know, went and got my MFA because I was like, you know, this world sucks. Like I should create another world. Like, you know, and I just really always understood the power of not only storytelling, but black storytelling. Like there is 
you know, so much rich history in telling our stories and empowerment in telling our stories. And that's just what I wanted to dedicate my life to. And it just so happened that the only way I could actually make a sustainable living was through, you know, telling stories journalistically um, and as an editor, definitely like not as a writer. It was just, you know, I could not live on my own as a writer, but becoming an editor was a way for me to have like a consistent salary um, and be on staff you know, at, at different publications. And that's, you know, continued to this day. So it's been 10 years and I'm now editor-in-chief of Exo Nicole. Um, literally, I've worked every job in, you know, digital, you know, magazines. And so it's it's been a really amazing journey. And yeah, that's, that's it. So I always loved writing, but definitely did not think that this was going to be my entire career and just kind of circled back to it you know, to what I was really passionate about instead of people pleasing. Brooke, you have given us so much. And also when you drop the year that you were doing this, I'm like, oh my God, she is still so young. So you've accomplished an amazing, it may not seem like that to you in terms of, you know, 10 years is a long time, but it's really a short time, really. So I would just love to back up to Little Brown Brook growing up in Nebraska. With a fa- my father was in the military too, but I was lucky enough to be stationed in a very culturally diverse place down in Homestead, Florida. Even though I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, which is very small and uh, mostly black and white, and you know, in the um, you know, it wasn't super diverse. But we always have diverse friends and within the you know within the family and in our neighborhood, etc. I want to go back to you growing up there, not seeing yourself sort of reflected in the community. Um, I'm sure there was a level of being ostracized. And that clearly has informed your passion and love for telling Black stories. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. So... I sort of feel like there may be a, uh, maybe, I, I don't know if I've missed it somehow in my research of you, uh, a story about a little brown girl in a small town in Nebraska who has to face all of these things and comes out to be like this amazing writer, advocate, you know, creator um, of, of, of black people and, and our stories. I don't think that I have. So we'll be waiting for that. But I would love to just hear more about the part that church played in that. So for so many of us, church was an enormous part of our community and obviously shaped your, your, you were able to start where you were and such the Christian uh, background that you had led you to creating this blog and a, a young black woman, beautiful black woman out of right out of school, starting a Christian blog. That's not exactly what was happening in the mid 2000s. So talk a little bit about that. Um, So, you know, it was very much a huge part of my identity. um, And, you know, it was my refuge, honestly, you know, especially in Nebraska, because this was the place where I was surrounded by Black people, where I had the option of choosing my friends. Um, you know, we didn't have to all just be friends because we were all Black. Like, there were so many Black kids, I could actually go and, like, hang out with people who I liked <laughs> genuinely, you know, and also, you know, learned oratory skills, um, 
you know, just was allowed to be creative. There I could star in plays, um, always was in the Easter play, always was in the Christmas play, um, you know, things like that. Like it was just a real place of uh, where I felt acceptance, but also, I mean, again, as a people-pleasing, adult-pleasing child, like it's very easy um, in the church because they lay out what the rules are and all you have to do is follow the rules and you will be you know, successful in these environments. So I knew the words to say, I knew all the churchisms, like, you know, and I, you know, I did genuinely also believe in these things as well. Um, But it was very easy for me because I wasn't, you know, as non-conforming as I would have been had I been a queer person or, you know, any other, you know, marginalized person within, you know, a Black church context. So, um, it wasn't until I started meeting other people who were more marginalized in that context where I was like, hmm, maybe some of the stuff is also not very helpful to me either. Um, I was very much, I think one of my first um, big pieces for Ebony.com was about how dedicated I was to this social construct of virginity and this purity culture that I had grown up in. Um, it was, you know, something that I felt gave me moral superiority on the earth, you know, like it was really just, uh, it it ended up being really devastating um, to my life, clinging to this identity. um, And then when it failed me, because I didn't get the things that I wanted, like, you know, I was engaged to this person who was also practicing um, abstinence until marriage, but like, it wasn't a fulfilling relationship. It wasn't a healthy relationship you know, it wasn't all of the things that I had been promised, you know, and so I really had to go through this space of, you know, decolonizing spirituality um, for myself. And it started, of course, with the blog. Um, There were things that I was just kind of, you know, letting go of, um, you know, some of the, you know, the more harmful things um, and the ideas about women and the, the role of women in the world, like the, you know, the inherent patriarchy that's in the text. Like some of this stuff, yes, is cultural um, and it's uh, wrong interpretations and all those kinds of things. But like some of this stuff is actually in the book. And so I had to really reckon with like, what does that mean um, to, you know, sit with the fact that like God is punishing women very specifically in this chapter. And like the men who were doing the same thing, like got away with it or like the men, you know, in the Sodom and Gomorrah story that we're always told, um, God is punishing women. And he's like, Oh, punishing these people. Cause they're, you know, uh, it was all based in homophobia, but like, you know, they're actually trying to like rape people and God's not mad about that. Like that seems like more of a thing, you know, to be upset about, you know, rather than consensual relationships or anything like that. So I really had to sit and reckon with a lot of that and um, actually ended up leaving the church. Um, It was 2016. I was in New York. I was with this really young church um, and it was like, you know, exciting to be a part of building a church and, you know, had a really young black pastor and young black wife who had this really tragic, but beautiful story. And, you know, we were doing something new and young and progressive and in Harlem. And it was like all of these things, but like, 
y'all are mad homophobic. Y'all, you know, are extremely misogynistic. Like women are literally doing, like I was doing labor in that church and I was not getting paid. And there was no way for me to ever be, you know, a, a pastor of that church. There was no, like, it just wasn't, I was like, this is a scam. Like, and I'm, you know, it took me a really long time to get to that point, but I was like, I have to do something else. Like, cause for one, you know, this is not the way my ancestors were living. Um, and for two, you know, I, I'm not feeling fulfilled. This is not, this doesn't like, this is not who I want to be. This is not, you know, the culture that I want to be a part of. Um, and I'm going to have to find a way that my understanding of God can be reflected, you know, in the communities that I'm building in, you know, the ideas that um, I'm putting out into the world. Um, so that, that was really my, what my transition um, was all about to just a more loving and deeper and wider and more <laughs> um, or less tangible idea of like who God is. Like you can't nail God down to this this one specific thing that you know we can totally understand. It was really just about the more I learned, the more I understood, um, revealing how little I actually understood. Preach, so. girl, preach. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked about spirituality in such a long time. So thank you for asking about that. Well, Brooke, it really resonates with, I think, John and I, because we both grew up in the church with a very narrow, and I, I was grew up in the Church of Christ. So it was even more sort of stringent in the way that, like, if you compare it to other like churches, especially black churches, like Baptist churches, where there's, you at least could uh, show emotion a little bit more. Like my boyfriend makes fun of me all the time because he grew up in a different church. And he's like, you guys are in, we're in there like robots. I was like, you guys were in there like y'all were partying, like it was the night at the club. Like we didn't do that. Anyway, it's such an interesting, like, and I think I had a, a sense that like, this is how the world is and this is how I'm going to live my life and and as I got older and more exposed to things around me and people around me and diversity in the sense of oh not everybody comes from a even a Christian background so imagine getting to a place in South Florida where there were actual Jews and Catholics what are those it was it's so this really resonated with me because I I feel like I had a similar awakening at some point. And I think John could probably share his, your journey is similar to his, right, John? Yeah. I'm, I'm literally like having a little bit of a moment because I, a, I didn't know that book about you. So I, again, I love learning just new perspectives about people, but I think the key that I walk away is, is all about enlightenment, right? Like we were, we were literally conditioned to to think and act a certain way but then you're like wait there's a little bit of holes and gaps in between some of these stories y'all are telling me and just being a gay black man like i grew up as a southern baptist and i grew up very like you got to do it was very strenuous and very like specific about a lot of things so i love that your your story opened that up but i'm curious to know too brooke like 
how did you come to that awakening of like, I got, like, I have to do this. Like, it's because I just feel like you're so, I know just for me, it was so, I can't tell you the last time I've been to church. And I know that literally, that literally drives my mom up the wall. And that doesn't mean that I don't believe in God and Jesus and everything else, but it just means that I had to find it in my own way. I had to, I had to speak, to, learn how to speak to God in my own way. And, and, I, and I feel like I've done that. But again, that condition comes down of like, yeah. you got to go to church. You got to tithe. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to go to Easter Sunday. You got to go to Bible school. You got to go to vacation Bible school. You got to go to Sunday school. You got to do all these things. And if you don't, then God don't love you. And I'm like, well, no, yeah. that don't really make sense. So for me, it's, it's, I am, I, I'm so, uh, I admire you and I really, uh, I respect you for that because again, those aha moments are so beautiful because I know they're tough to also make too, because again, yeah. we've been in it for so long. So I wanted to say, like, what was kind of like, was that, what, what was that experience that kind of was like your, your breaking point? Like, okay, enough and, is and, and how are your parents feeling about yes. your, I was, I'm like, I, cause I know how my parents, <clears throat> excuse me, feel about how I've moved away from a very religious way of, of yes. being. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So how did your parents navigate all of this and how did they feel about your awakening? Yeah. Okay. So I'll start with the breaking point. Um, for me, I think I had been conditioned by the church to accept abuse. Um, I think that's really kind of a big part of church Christian culture is, you know, um, long suffering and, you know, the way that you'll be, you know, like just carry your cross and you'll be rewarded in heaven. Um, if you just keep, you know, pushing through this abuse, um, lots of things that have been misinterpreted. And again, it's, it's more so culture, but there's some scripture that can back that up too. But at any rate, um, I was very surprised with myself because I was like, that's how I stayed in a relationship. You know, when I was, you know, engaged um, for five years, that was completely toxic because there was this idea, there's going to be a reward, you know, at the end. And finally being able to get out of that just because I was in law school in a different state and it just was easier to separate myself. But for the church, it really was in that church in Harlem. Um, The first thing that happened was, um, you know, I had been very outspoken about the homophobia in the church. And so when the pastor wanted to do a series on dating, which again, he had not been single and dating, you know, longer than a year, probably. He had been married very young and then his wife tragically passed away. And then a year later, he was married to somebody else. Like, first of all, why are you doing dating sermons? Like, you don't remember dating, you know, you don't know what it's like to be in your thirties and dating and all these men are trash, you know, like, I don't want to hear that perspective. But anyway, he wanted to do a part of this dating series on queer people. And so he sent me his sermon um, to, you know, check and see if it was okay. So of course I'm redlining all the, I'm like, you can't say any of this stuff. Like if you want to talk about, you know, relationships and how they're supposed to be about procreation, you're going to upset a lot of cisgender heterosexual couples as well, who are unable to have kids or who don't want to have kids. Like you can't, this stuff doesn't make sense. Like the way that you're defining what a godly relationship is, you think you're doing something, but you're going to cut out a whole lot of these other people that you think are doing marriage the right way. So like all of this stuff is like, can't, you can't do any of this stuff. So I basically like X'd out 
the whole sermon and was like, if you want to talk about, you know, queer people and the church and relationships, you need to talk about how the church can be in right relationship with queer people. You need to talk about the trans children suicide rates and the ways that church culture has, you know, encouraged um, the isolation and ostracization of you know, queer people and the and what the reality of that is, what that leads to. Like people are literally dying because of these wrong beliefs and how that squares against what Jesus teaches about how we're supposed to love and be community and and look out for the people who are the least of these as far as, you know, the most marginalized, the people who need the most care. That's what your sermon should be about. And so that Sunday, um, he went up there and I had never in my life heard a pastor from the pulpit give the trans children suicide rates, um, talk about the way that the church had, you know, isolated and harmed trans people and queer people. And I was bawling my eyes out. I was like, wow, this is really something like, okay, I'm having an impact. And then he flipped the script and the second half of that sermon was everything that he had already originally planned to do so it was a bait and switch like I really felt used I felt like I had been used as a weapon to make him look better make him look good give him cover for all the horrible stuff he was about to say um and it was it was really devastating for me and I was like I you know this is and I actually talked to we had queer people in the church and so we had like a talk back afterwards and you know, this queer young woman was just like bawling her eyes out. She was like, I really thought that you saw me. I thought that you understood like that first part of that sermon, like I really felt accepted. And then you just like turned it on me. And um, he was like, well, you got to do what God tells me. And it was just like, it was terrible. It was, it was terrible. And that should have been the point that I left. That was my one foot out the door. Um, and it should have been enough. And I really regret that it wasn't, but uh, maybe about Two months later, um, I had been talking to him for quite a bit about the misogyny in the church and about the fact that, like, I'm doing all this labor. I'm not getting paid for this, you know. Um, And, you know, I I think at that point, too, I didn't see what he did as abuse. Like, I really didn't. Like, I, I, again, you know, conditioned to ignore those kinds of things. Um, So then um, we were having this email exchange. you know, and basically he, it was very clear at that point. We had had an in-person meeting. Um, we were continuing the conversation over email. And he was like, I know you're going to keep working with me on this. But it was like very clear that he's like, this is not what I believe God wants you know, us to do. We don't need to have women as pastors. You know, it's good to have the women as the, the babysitters of the church and, you know, doing all of the labor, like physical labor, you know, and building the church. Um, but, you know, this is just where I'm at right now, but I know you're going to keep working with me on this. I know you're going to keep struggling with me on this. I was like, the fuck I am. I was like, I'm good. I resign. And that was it. And I think that was really the first time where I was just like, I actually don't have to be here. I actually don't have to continue doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Like I can unplug from insanity. Like, you know, this is, this is not it. Like whatever this is, um, you know, this is not what God has for me, what God has for queer people, what God has for the most marginalized among us. Like this space is not it. Um, 
And even after that, I went to a church with a very lovely black woman as the pastor. Because I already said, if I ever go to a church, I will never go to a church where a man is the pastor again. Like, I just can't do it. Um, And she was a very lovely woman. Um, But then she said something like, Van Jones should be the president. And I was like, all right, that's it. Like, it was a much lower. I was already kind of done anyway. But like, (laughs) we're not... (laughs) <laughs> we're not champions, like i'm sorry so that was the end that was my last time i think it was like easter um that was it and i haven't been back since that was that's really been it for me um my parents you know are disappointed especially my mom that was definitely a way for us to relate and she's read everything that i've ever written in my entire life she read every blog post she was so proud of me in this christian blog that i started and the awards that i won and how it launched my writing career um, you know, and I had a spiritual life column at Ebony and, you know, she was so, so, so proud. So it was really devastating for her in particular. But I mean, yeah, both of my parents, I think, you know, are like, think that I am godless because I'm, you know, not going to church. And that kind of sucks. Like I have tried to explain, you know, I've had many, many conversations with them. Like they're the people I'm never going to give up on. Like we're going to keep having these conversations even though they're probably fruitless or not. like, I'm not going to do that kind of labor for anybody other than my parents, you know? Um, and that's just a choice that I've made um, to even keep having these kinds of conversations. Like they're really uncomfortable. They suck, but I'm going to keep, you know, doing it. Cause I'm really close to my parents. And like, I talk to my parents like a thousand times a day, um, every day, you know? So I, I just, they have to be a part of my life and I'm just, gonna go ahead and 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 work through that but um yeah they you know they are very entrenched in their in their beliefs you know um so that's just what that is but i think it's i I love that thank you so much for sharing that and i love that this is thank you for sharing this this oh my gosh very spiritually rooted conversation Um, but I, I think that speaks volumes to just the character you, who you are as a woman. And then just also to who your parents are, because it's a little bit of like, I got to do my part and you got to do your part and we're going to meet somewhere in the middle, but it's like no love, there's no love loss because that's, yeah. I think that's the beauty of it, of it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I think for me with my mom, um, cause I'm, I'm kind of the same way. She, she has probably this, oh my God, he's worshiping the devil type of thing. But also, he's my child, he's my baby, so I'm still going to love him. But like, I want you to find Jesus. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. and, and I kind of tell her, I'm like, well, let me tell you what my Jesus is, my, what my God looks like. And let me, and we can, let's, let's meet in the middle here somewhere. Because yeah. I'm not, I'm not over here doing this crazy stuff like you think I am. I'm just not going to Sunday, going to church every Sunday at the crack of dawn and, and spending three hours there. I don't have that kind of time. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really, really love that. And I too, like I have different, you know, ways of practicing my spirituality, you know, um, very, I've, you know, gotten into tarot, you know, I pray quite a bit and meditate quite a bit. Um, I go hiking. Um, that is my like prayer time. That's my church. I have an abolitionist book club. Um, so that abolition has become my religion 100%, you know, and so being in community with other black women who are all about abolition on Sundays, like, and, you know, reading these books and reading Angela Davis and like, you know, trying to imagine a different world. And even, you know, my fiction writing, um, screenplays that I'm, you know, writing, all of these things are all rooted in this idea of liberation. And, you know, the Jesus I serve 
is all about liberation. Like that's it, you know? So it just, in everything that I do, it doesn't have to be explicitly, you know, Christian in any way. Um, It's about, you know, liberation, liberation for black people. And the way that if black people are free, everybody's free because we're, you know, the most marginalized. So, and, and like you said before, it shows up in your work. It shows up in how you present yourself it does. It shows up in your writing. And I think that's the that's the um, the liberating and the enlightenment and the education that you're doing with your pen, with your, with your brain up here. And I think that's so powerful. That is the, that is the moment right there. It's your ministry, Pastor Brooks. Yes. Yes. You know, and I really do, you know, it feels really sad to me, too, because I do understand how much I've been conditioned to accept abuse and, you know, how that manifests because of the church, like in the environment and the work environments that I'm in, you know, like all of these situations that I've stayed in like a little bit too long. And so that really was it wasn't just about leaving that church. It was about understanding what abuse is and what liberation is and going towards that in every area of my life. Like, I'm not gonna stay in a toxic work environment. I'm not gonna stay in a toxic friendship. I'm not gonna stay in a toxic romantic relationship. Like, these things are not, you know, gonna be a part of my life, you know, moving forward. So that's, um, that's been huge. It's been, it's been really huge. It's taken a long time um, for me to get to this point where I can recognize what abuse is and recognize that this is not what God has for me and to lead those spaces. So I'm, I'm just really happy that, you know, I'm now in that space where I can do that. Well, we absolutely love that. And this conversation has lit us up and it's not even where we remotely thought we were going. <laughs> not at all. It's it's Not really it, it's it's really amazing, and I think it will resonate with so many people because so many of us have grown up, um, sort of immersed and entrenched in a belief system that doesn't really serve us anymore. And so we see and know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. We have to figure out what works for us. And so, you know, I'd love to maybe pivot back a little bit about you are making this transition, you're at this church, but you also have a full, you have a job. Like you're working on building your career. And also it sounds like being at this church is also like a full-time job. And so navigating all the the things that are sort of happening in journalism at that time, certainly digital is starting to take over and you've got this amazing like training, this JD and Combining all of those, they must help inform your ability to be very thoughtful and critical in how you approach things. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to just hear a little bit about, like, is there your JD brain on this side, your little Brooke JD brain and your MFA writing brain on this side and how they come together? Oh, absolutely. I 100% credit law school for the way that I think, the way that I analyze issues. Because, I mean, honestly, what they teach you to do in law school is to problem solve, you know, um, and to create an argument um, for your position. So if I'm writing a review, usually, like, if you know, I am, that's kind of why, you know, people get mad, because, like, it's not just my, you know, my thoughts and, you know, just 
not connected to like I'm going to give you my thesis and I'm going to make I'm going to argue all of my points about why I feel the way that I feel you know and I just you know that's something too as an editor like I try to encourage um you know I don't want to take over anybody's voice or anything like that but just giving them like you know back this up like this is what you're saying like give some like was there a scene was there something you know in this you know that makes you feel this way about this particular piece of art like state your case and i definitely got that from the legal writing program at mercer university so shout out to mercer um and then you know for the mfa um it was really just like i i never outlined in law school like that's supposed to be the thing that gets you through law school and i never did it um i probably would have done better in law school i mean i did pretty good in law school but um probably would have done better if i had gotten into it but at my MFA taught me to outline. And I think the first time that I really like, cause I needed the outline for one to finish the book. Like it was just the way that I got through that, that process of writing my novel book of Addis. Um, I had to go through, you know, like there were times I didn't feel like writing. There was another part of the book that was more interesting to me. So I'm going to have to jump into that part and just write about that. Like I have to write something and I have to turn something in as my thesis in order to graduate. And I have already decided that I'm turning in a first draft of this book as my thesis in order to graduate, which you you only had to turn in 70 pages, but I was like, no, I'm going to go the whole, I turned into like 200 pages. Um, you know, this first draft of my novel um, in order to graduate. And I was like, to get this done, I'm going to have to write regularly whether I feel like it or not. So I need to find something in this book that is exciting to me on this day. And that's where the outline came in. Um, And I think the first time that I used an outline in just like my article writing was when I wrote that piece about Green Book. I'm sorry, John. (laughs) I know that, but that's how we met. So I'm so glad we met because of Green Book. So I, I'm, I'm glad. We did. And I, listen, I and I and we've talked about it, and you know I love you, and we and we, yeah. But listen, listen, the work had to be done. I think I would be lying to you to say that I wasn't again moved emotionally from the article. Also from, uh, oh my God, am I gonna lo- am I gonna lose my job as well? Oh, kind of no. moved. like it was it was a, it was the emotions from all all sides. But again. You and now that you say it, it's so crazy because you were literally presenting your case as a lawyer, yeah. and you were like, yeah. "This is what this is my theory, and this is what I'm backing up with facts yeah. on, on why this is the way it is." And that's like I can't say that every writer goes it through that lens. You know it what I mean? It was brilliant. It was so brilliant. It was extremely brilliant. A hundred percent. Thank you. And I'm just I'm just grateful to the Shirley family because again, they reached out to me. I would have you know a a real journalist probably would have gone and like dug up for these things. And, you know, I just was watching a movie that I didn't like and I wrote my review and they reached out to me like, thank you so much for writing this review. You have no idea how right you are. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, can we talk about this? Like, and that's how that ended up happening. Um, That, you know, I'm just grateful that they were, you know, they trusted me with their story. Um, And it, it took a long time. It took, you know, it took quite a long time to write that piece. And I, I really did have to create that outline to make sure, you know, and, you know, I was listening to Dr. Shirley's music, you know, while I wrote it, like, I really, really, really wanted that piece to be something that honored him. um, And that, you know, hopefully that he would have appreciated, you know, it's just, it's so sad. We don't know more about, you know, who he was and he didn't have the opportunity to tell his own story the way that he wanted to tell it. But, um, that was really, you know, uh, a mission for me. It's always 
been my mission to tell black people's stories. Um, and that was just so in line with like my heart and just what I want to do in the world. And so I'm, I'm really, really grateful for, for that and could not have done it without, you know, the training that I got in my MFA and, you know, in law school. So this uh, student loan debt, we still got to talk about it. Joe Biden, like we need to get it together. Uh, <laughs> just get rid of it. Just cancel it. Like what's just, the problem? Just, just get rid of it. Just go. Just clear it all away and let's move on. Jesus paid it all. Right. right. Like, <laughs> um, Brooke, so I, I, I love that you brought that Green Book up because it's like I know that Green Book article because I feel like you're so intentional with your writing and just again as a reader it's like I know you're like I want people to have this response when they read my work I want them to to walk away with this uh, piece of information in reading my work when you were writing that piece were you were you how, how was your process like what did you do exactly you wrote a review which was a negative review um, and you and you backed it up with why you felt like it was negative. Um, we don't have to rehash, but we you know go read it. Um, but um, but then you the family reached out to you. You had a conversation with them, and then from there, did you always know you were going to write something from that point, or was it always like oh yeah, like going into it, going and talking to the family? Were you always like I'm going to write something? Agree- yes, once they agreed to the conversation, it was You're- we were doing a piece, you know? Um, And I think there's some people that wanted to be off the record because, you know, for various reasons, but they they actually got me started on the piece, giving me background and connecting me to other members of the family. Um, But I think once I talked to Edwin Shirley, who was the nephew of Dr. Shirley, I was like, okay, I'm starting the piece with him um, and his experience because it would have been so great. You know, he was this young boy traveling down South with, his uncle, um, who was this, you know, amazing man who was using his music to help move the civil rights movement forward. Um, and I'm like, that would have been such a great movie. That that's the movie right there. Like, what? Are, that's Green Book. You know, that's real. Like, black people using the Green Book to navigate the world, and an uncle teaching his nephew about that experience after a really tragic loss. He had just lost his um, brother. And that's why Dr. Shirley took Edwin on this trip so that, you know, to help him kind of deal and grieve. And I'm like, this is a beautiful story. So um, I knew I was going to start with Edwin. But when I talked to other members of the family, um, Maurice Shirley and his wife, so Maurice was the youngest brother, and learned that all of the um, Dr. Shirley was not the only doctor in that family. Like they all had PhD. Like they're all brilliant. They're all doing amazing things. I'm like this, this family is so rich. Like, and I just wanted to, you know, tell as many of their stories as possible and their experiences with Dr. Shirley and just their family in general. You know how they owned one of the first black-owned beaches. Um, you know, in Florida. Like, there's just so much history. I'm like. These are the stories that we should be telling. And this is what happens when white people get a hold of our stories and co-opt them and make themselves the center of it and push us to the margins. Like so much history gets lost. And so I really wanted to go through, you know, and start with, you know, Edwin Shirley sitting in the movie theater and watching Green Book and being horrified and then explaining what was wrong with the movie um, and what the things that they got wrong um, and based on, you know, what the family is saying, what their experience is, and then go through all the things like the family went through to try to get some of the stuff corrected, to try to, you know, get things changed. Um, and then go into like, 
okay, this is all wrong. Now, who is the real Dr. Shirley? So that was my outline. Um, I still have it somewhere. But um, yeah, um, it was another one of those things where I'm like, okay, if I can't quite figure out how I want to put these, you know, things together, like, let me go to the place where I am really sure about and I'll just write that. And it did, it did not go out when it was supposed to go out because I spent so much time with it. I sent it to the family. And that's also not a thing usually that journalists do. Like, you know, you write your story, but like, again, my mission was to tell their story and to, you know, bring honor um, to that story. And I didn't want to publish anything that they felt, you know, maybe they were misquoted or mischaracterized or anything like that. So I let them read it. I'm like, I'm going to publish this in an hour. So, you know, take some time and read it. And they did. And they were very grateful. And, um, you know, so then I was like, okay, now I have, I have the blessing to go ahead and put this, put this out. So it, it took a long time. It, it really did. And it was hours. It was like 16 hours, I think, of uh, recorded audio that I had talking to different family members over, you know, various periods of time. And um, yeah, so it, it was a lot to transcribe. I transcribed everything by hand to, I was not given, you know, a service, you know, I guess I probably could have paid for it myself, but um, I did not do that. I transcribed it all by hand. And yeah, it was a long time, but it was worth it. Brooke. So <clears throat> first of all, Thank you for doing that. Again, this is part of your ministry. This is part of the way that you minister to Black folks, our community. And this sounds like it was one of the highlights of your career. First of all, I'd like to see this in a, I'd like to see this in a podcast version if you would like to go ahead and put that out, oh, ma'am. Uh, that would be amazing. That would be if amazing. It would be really amazing. And if, of course, if you decide to do that, we would be more than happy to support you in any way. Um, what are some of the other highlights over this illustrious career that you have? And you have, the, you're this, you're a, uh, have a new role at XO Nicole. Shout out to Nicole and her amazing story as well. And it sounds like there's some synergies between you guys with this ability to like pivot and reinvent yourself. And I just want to hear a little bit more about career highlights and then this new role that you have, what you're planning for the, for the, for the outlet. Tell mm -hmm. us everything. So, okay, definitely sticking with Green Book, not just writing it. Um, at the, I was there at the Oscars. I was there at the Golden Globes when they just kept winning. I was backstage. I was challenging them backstage with questions. Um, and it still just felt like such a loss. It felt just really bad. Like, you know, this was a, a, an article that had gone viral that everybody was reading and everybody was using. You know, now all of the, the writer of the movie and the producers and the director, like they all had to start answering questions that they didn't have to answer before. And they were getting really annoyed and started to slip up and say racist stuff and all kinds of stuff. And they still won. And it was such an eye-opening moment for me about Hollywood and how Hollywood works. And it's basically like, you know, they're going to double down on this. Like if somebody's coming out, that's why I had no, I had no doubt that Jane Campion was still going to win Best Director. Everybody was like, oh, are these comments about Serena and Venus going to stop her? I'm like, no, it, this is probably going to help her. Like they're, they double down on this stuff. If you call out 
somebody for their racism, you know, the establishment is going to rally behind them and be like, no, actually, you know, they're trying to teach you a lesson and we're not going to allow that. Um, so it was a very big wake up call for me. And it, that, honestly, I felt really depressed. I felt really defeated um, when they won everything. Um, but then I think to get the Route 100 um, for writing that piece, um, that was huge to me because this was a black institution that was like, you know, the work that you did mattered and we're going to celebrate that, um, you know, and it's not going to be forgotten. Um, so that was a huge, huge moment. I think 2019 in general was probably just like the highlight of my career um, beyond being named, you know, editor in chief, which is something that I've always wanted um, and had always been told like, oh, I don't think you're, you've achieved quite enough yet. I'm like, I haven't achieved enough, to, but you know, um, so I was very, very happy, um, you know, when uh, Woolpacker Media reached out about this opportunity with Exo Nicole, um, you know, it was, it was huge. It was like the final, you know, point of validation for me that like, you know, we see your work um, and, you know, you, this is not something that you have to beg for. Like I've felt consistently in my career, like I'm like begging people to like pay attention and listen and, and things like that. Even if maybe that's not totally true, but that's definitely how I felt. Like, you know, I was just not being recognized um, or the work that I did didn't really matter enough. Or if, even if I did, get some recognition, like it never translated into like money or <laughs> opportunities or anything like that, you know? So I was like, okay, so what good is this? Like when I, I got a bunch of awards for my novel, which was really great, but that didn't translate into me getting a book deal to write another book or, you know? So I'm like, okay, these things are great, but like, you know, maybe there's only so far I can go. So I was just really grateful um, to be seen and to be honored the work that I had done um, and to even be approached um, about the Exo Nicole opportunity. Um, I've been following Nicole, again, since the blogger days, you know, I was all into that space. And so to see Nicole's um, transition and her decision, you know, to go from a gossip blog to a lifestyle website, you know, it was really inspirational. And she did lose a lot of people and it didn't matter. Like her goal, her mission was more important than keeping an audience of people who weren't ready to go on that journey with her. So that was extremely inspirational. Um, and so, you know, we're just trying to do um, more, build more upon the legacy that Nicole started. You know, it's all about empowering Black women. Um, it's all about creating this space for Black millennial women, especially too, because, you know, a lot of our sites are like, okay, you know, forget the old people. What is Gen Z talking about? Like, let's be on, you know, TikTok. Let's do all these, like, let's go for the youngest, you know, possible. And I'm just like, black women are, you know, who are millennials and Gen X, like they're the ones with the money. Like they can afford to go to the conferences. Like they can buy the products. <laughs> like, Gen X, Gen X. Yes. <laughs> they, they're settled in the career. Like, you know, um, and maybe looking to transition and, you know, they're the ones that, you know, really could use this empowerment and the support. And we don't want to leave anybody out. We want to be a space where all black women, you know, can feel accepted and valued and find, 
you know, the information that they need to be empowered for sure. But like, I was just so happy that this was not going to be a space where like black millennial and Gen X women were going to be pushed to the side. Like we're going to, no, we're going to center, you know, these women in our, in our storytelling and we're going to center their stories. And it's such a place where, you know, you can tell your own story. Like we have as told to's um, on the side. It's really great. Like that's really what sets us Exonical apart from other sites because yeah because you get to actually have the space as an you know as a reader as an audience member to actually share your story and to be validated and to hear there are so many other people who are like you and who are going to learn and grow from your story so um, you know expanding all of that expanding podcasts um, you know I am trying you know because my heart and soul is really in TV and film development. Um, you know, I've got a screenplay in development right now. I'm really excited about. And so, you know, I, I want to have, you know, X and Nicole have a distribution deal, um, to have, you know, development deal. Um, like those are things that, you know, I'm working on, um, got some pretty exciting, um, things, uh, coming up this summer too. Um, I won't reveal quite yet, but it's, it's, it's great. Like there's, there's movement happening here. There's progress happening here. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. And it's exciting to see you at the forefront of it. It's just, again, we didn't know what to expect from this conversation. You feel like, you know, we're in the same industry together. We see each other. And I just remember having the best time with you at Sundance and it was my first time there and first time really getting to sit and like commune with you. And I knew then, and I should have gone and sort of like, you know, done a little research about looking up your receipts because our conversations were really rich and, and interesting and, and very critical. And I was like, even then I was like, I don't know if I'm smart enough to be talking to this woman. Like she's amazing. And so you are taking the time out on uh, taking the time on your off day to spend it with John and I to just share your story and so much inspiration to our black on the scene community and family. We want to thank you for that. And we want to thank you for everything that you do to lift us up, to shine a light on, you know, who we are, what we do, how we live, how we love and not letting things just ride because the status quo says that it should. It really, again, I think is your ministry. And we have this thing that we do to wrap up our, our um, conversations with our guest. And I feel like I already know maybe the answer to this, but Black on the Scene is our love letter to Black entertainment and what it does just broadly about showing us who we are, who we can be for us, by us. And I'm curious to know, what would you say is your love letter, aside from your entire career and life, that might be the answer, to Black entertainment and maybe your goals and aspirations for seeing it even bigger and better than what it is now? Black entertainment 100% saved my life. Um, it gave me purpose. It gave me imagination and it showed me that there is power in telling our stories and that if we can write our story and imagine a different 
possible world and get other people to engage with that, whether it's a book, whether it's TV, um, whether it's film, other people start living in that world that you created and then it's real. Then it's a community of people in that space. And I will never, ever, ever dismiss the power of black entertainment. Um, I think that's why I'm, I'm critical of it as well. It's why I may be hard on it too, because I know the power that it can have. So when, you know, we do get um, black talent in these positions to tell stories on a wide basis, but we slide into colorism or we slide into homophobia or we slide into transphobia or slide into misogyny, you know, ignoring black women altogether or making black women, you know, the prize for the black male hero, you know, stuff like that. I have to be critical of it because, that is evidence that we're we're not we're living in a a white cis heteropatriarchal imagination that was not created for us. It was created to exclude us. So when we create art that's still in those spaces, it means our imagination isn't big enough. We're still being stunted. We're still being limited. And black entertainment has the ability to literally move the world. Like we are the culture. We are the culture. There are people all over the world who are talking and singing and dancing and creating in the ways that have been inspired to create by us. And so um, it's on us, I think, to understand the power of Black entertainment, respect the power of Black entertainment, and expand our mind beyond the limitations that we've been socialized with so that we can change the world and make this the world that we all deserve to live in. Brooke Obi. Girl, this has been a masterclass of so many things. We thank you. We love you. We see you. Thanks again. I love you, God. I love you, Didi. I love you, John. Um, I love Black on the Scene. This podcast is everything. So I'm so excited that you had me on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guests and to you for listening to this week's episode of Black on the Scene. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review, plus share your own love letter for Black entertainment and follow us on all social media platforms at Black on the Scene. See you next time.